Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 98. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Russell Napier. He's the author of The Solid Ground, an independently published global macro investment report. Russell is also the co-founder of ERIC, the platform for the sale of individually priced investment research. He also founded a course at the Edinburgh Business School called A Practical History of Financial Markets and is the author of Anatomy of the Bear. Welcome to the show, Russell. Thank you. For those people who know you, that you're probably best associated, well, I'd say associated with a number of things. In the first instance, would you like to say something about the library of mistakes? Yeah, sure. The Library of Mistakes is a real thing. Uh, people often think it isn't. But yeah, it's three rooms full of books on financial history. The obvious question is why. It's a public library, but why does it exist? Uh, it is possible, Tim, to leave university now with knowing nothing on financial history, even if one has a degree in finance, even if one has a postgraduate degree in finance, because financial history is irrelevant. In a world where all available information is in the price then financial history is not taught. So that seems to me, and I think many people who do this for a living, uh, i.e. invest for a living, to be rather silly. Silly is a word they don't use in academia. Uh, therefore, we are a small errorist cell, strategically placed near universities. <laughs> and we are strategically placed near universities to try and bring this to universities because it is impossible to do it inside universities. So we have one in Edinburgh, we have one in Pune in India, which is in a university, which is a fantastic university called Flame University. It's a liberal arts university, which has got a more open mind about where knowledge comes from. Uh, it doesn't always come from ones and zeros. And the uh, and we are about to open in Lausanne. We'd probably be open in Lausanne if it wasn't for COVID-19, but we'll be open soon. We've got a beautiful uh, library there. And another thing that you're associated with, I mean, I, I would say, uh, just as a, as a plug, I don't know if it's relevant or not, because I suspect it's normally oversubscribed, but you also teach, along with other people, a practical history of financial markets, don't you? Because I've, atten- I've attended that course. So it's one of the best best few days I've had. Great. Well, th- thanks for that. We get. I mean, the course does usually sell out, and it sells out entirely in word of mouth. So that is, you know, just a wonderful endorsement for the course. Uh, of course, it isn't sold out at the minute for obvious reasons, and we're not even sure when we will be able to teach again. But we do plan to teach early. Uh, it's first week of uh, of October, and we'll just have to see whether that happens or not but that's part of the same mission i don't know if you could say crusade is probably uh, politically tinged these days but it's uh, it's all about trying to teach people that there is something in the past that has value uh for the future and it seems such an obvious thing to say uh, and it's, it's a thing that is not criticized in any other discipline except finance uh, but uh, i think i suspect the reason you liked it tim is there's just that not that many other courses like it which is really a, a surprise to me we set this up and launched it in 2004 i would have expected now to see a whole plethora of courses uh, offering this uh, sort of approach to financial education but actually as far as i can see we're still the only one and there's uh, there's, there's a few other things i'll just just mention in passing the other one i'd, I'd add is there's a, a business called Eric. Do you want to say a bit, a bit about Eric? Yeah, so Eric is a business which sells independent research to investment professionals. It was set up, I, I established it and set it up. We've got about 150 uh, independent research providers selling uh, through Eric. We're trying to sell through through Eric. It's a very tricky market. Anybody who's, who does this uh, as a professional will know that there's a change in the legislation which was supposed to decouple 
uh, the provision of research from the payment of brokerage commissions. And let's just say that hasn't gone smoothly in terms of establishing a fair price for independent research because brokers are providing their research at, let's just say, rather attractive levels and just leave it, leave it at that. So, uh, But that's what Eric is, is, is trying to do. I think it's really, really, really important, uh, particularly in the modern era. The, there are four or five big investment banks that are now dominating uh, the provision of research. They're now dominating the, the primary issuance. Uh, there's a clear and obvious conflict between the two. Uh, and yet they are becoming this oligopoly. So uh, in a very, very, very small way, Eric is tilting against that oligopoly. What can history teach us, if anything, about the current situation that we find ourselves in? Well, how long have we got? But uh, I think what we should say is is that we shouldn't expect a cyclical, we should, we should drop, basically drop cyclical analysis in this situation. This is triggering a major structural change. Uh, and not for the one that people always say, there's a societal change coming and society will change and its perspectives and objectives and incentives will change. That might, that might well be true. We can hypothesize about that. Uh, but I think what it says, what, what, what financial history says is, but going into this debt to GDP, total debt to GDP was close to all-time highs. It's now off the chart, way above uh, any level of any global conflict we've, we've ever fought. So uh, financial history has a lot to say. And usually I do a 90-minute presentation on this, Paul. has a lot to say about what actions government will take when debt to GDP reaches very high levels. And now we're at record high levels. So I don't know, maybe we'll get into that as this conversation progresses. But I would say the number one that, the thing that financial history is screaming at us is, when we've been anywhere like this before, how did we get debt to GDP levels down? And then working backward from that, we can make some uh, some good calls on the returns from uh, uh, asset classes. Does debt to GDP ever go down? Yeah, that is right. I mean, it, it has gone down. It's gone down very, very often. So 45 to 82, it went down through that entire period. It went down after World War One. Fairly sharply, we managed to get it down after World War One. Uh, we got it down, uh, it's pretty spectacularly after the Napoleonic War, but that may, for the United Kingdom, that may have, uh, being because we invaded and subjected foreign nations to our power and extracted money from them. So there are lots of times in history when debt to GDP has uh, has gone down. Yeah, it's, it's happening pretty regularly. It just hasn't happened since 1982. It's been pretty much, for the developed world, uh, an upward, upward slope since uh, 1982. Uh, and really kicks in spectacularly, I would argue, as a historian. Uh, we, we can put that all down to one man who discovered it. His name is Michael Milken. Uh, and Milken discovered the, the power of leverage, and that power of leverage was then uh, inflicted upon lots of global cash flows. So, uh, yeah, you, you've got to go back before '82 to see it, but it's there. If you go to emerging markets, by the way, it, it happens. It has happened much more frequently since 1982, and uh, Venezuela would be a good example of a country that has radically reduced its debt to GDP ratio. So there's a, there's a thesis that I would I would put forward, and this has been the case since at least 2007, if, if not before, which is there is too much debt in the world, primarily government debt. The debt can pro- and this was the case before 2007, 2008, and the financial, the first financial global financial crisis, that that debt is going to be difficult, if not impossible, to service, and that if there are three boxes that governments can sort of resort to as a way of as a way out of this predicament. The first box is called engineer enough economic growth to keep the debt serviced. And I think that's now that's now been put to the sword quite conclusively by by the pandemic. The second box is called default, or if you prefer a flowerier term, jubilee or restructuring, but they all amount to largely the same thing. Um, and in a credit-based system, that's Armageddon. 
And so what's in box number three is what's been in box number three throughout all of recorded history, which is inflation. So it seems, I, mean, I would suggest, and I'm, well, I'm happy to be sort of criticised, critiqued in this, but I would suggest that what the, the coronavirus pandemic has done is it's acted as a bit like a sort of time machine. And it shuttled us forward very, very aggressively to that sort of end point of, well, we're about to see what happens when the system can't realistically take on any more debt anymore. And I think the answer is going to be uh, perhaps quite powerful and uncontrollable inflation, but I'm happy to be proven wrong. Yeah, so I think the only question is, is the level of inflation, Tim, mm. what they judge to be socially, I think two things, what level is socially acceptable? And then B, which is a bigger question today, can you actually generate that level of inflation? Yeah. So I, I agree with you that it's going to be inflation. Let me give you some numbers from history as to as to how this can be done. So France and the United Kingdom end World War II with, with similar debt to GDP uh, levels. France, of course, can legitimately default on some of that debt, given who imposed that debt upon them. So that's good for them. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Nazi debt obviously wasn't uh, wasn't honoured. Uh, but uh, even so, uh, in, a, in the five-year period post-World War II, France's government debt to GDP, and, and this is just government debt, we don't have good private debt to GDP numbers for France, but there very probably there probably, probably wasn't much private debt to GDP, uh, private debt in the system. So they managed to get it from 180% to 50% of GDP. Now, the, now that, that was done in France with very high inflation. So inflation was in, in those five years from 44, uh, 44, 6th of June 44 until 1950, that was done with 50% inflation and 6% interest rates. Uh, and that's kind of the key point for investors. People will say, well, why would anybody <laughs> lend the government money at 6% or lend any money at 60% when inflation is 50? Uh, the answer in their case is the government had control of the banks and the insurance companies. So it was quite easy to do that. Now, that's an aggressive repression. The gap, 6 against 50, is so big. And obviously, it's savers we pay for for all of that. But in a, you know, immediately after a war, uh, there are lots of guilty people out there. Uh, and this is the one thing about war. You can use, it's very usually easy to find the guilty and say it is perfectly legitimate to move wealth from these people to these people because these people receive their wealth illegitimately. Uh, and we did that with capital levies as well, which we might come back to. Uh, but let me give you the case of the United Kingdom where it was not so easy to point the finger and say, point to kind of illegitimate wealth gained during this, particularly during World War II when there are much more uh, restrictions on corporate profits. Uh, the United Kingdom's debt-to-GDP ratio government was 238% in 45, and it got to 50% by 1980. Uh, many people listening to this will probably remember that that was done with the same way the French did it, except the gap between inflation and, and, and the interest rates was much smaller. It was a negative number for, for quite a lot of that period. So we can get there, if you like. We can go on two different ways with inflation, uh, and that's really maybe what we would need to debate. Do we go the French route, which is very high inflation, and you can do it all in five or six years, or do we go the British post-World War II route, which takes from 45 to, to 1980? You say a level of inflation, but if we look at recent history and we, we look at Japan, we can see that they've got, first of all, a debt-to-GDP ratio of over 370%. I don't know what the exact number is, but it's probably around there. And they have had deflation rather than inflation. What makes you feel that we're going to be seeing inflation rather than deflation? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a great question and the most important question, really, because I think there is no genuine doubt as to whether central bankers can create inflation, which is an amazing vault fast, because when I was setting up my course, we, we teach a unit on how to invest in periods of deflation. And we consulted with lots of academics and setting it up, and they said, well, you don't need to teach that because we'll never see deflation again. 
Uh, yeah, I know we've now had three deflations uh, since since that conversation. But I mean, that was the academic belief. If you can create paper money, how the hell could you ever have deflation? So the obvious answer is they haven't created it. Now, uh, that, and let me give you this specific example of Japan. Money is created by both the printing press, which is the central bank, but also by the fountain pen. That's the extension of commercial bank balance sheets. When the commercial banks create assets, they actually create their own liabilities. This is something which we teach in the course uh, and which even some fund managers don't actually believe. But believe me, it's absolutely true. And the, So here's the failure of Japan. From 1997 to 2015, two, big, two dates I pick wisely, there was no growth in bank balance sheets. Zero. I mean, the bank balance sheets didn't grow at all. So what you have is a central bank desperately trying to create money and a commercial banking system not creating any money. Uh, so broad money growth in Japan through that period was was basically non-existence. So how do you get very high nominal GDP growth slash inflation if you don't have any growth in the total money in the system? So the difference this time, Paul, I think, and uh, you know, I've written for many years that QE would be similarly um, stupid and, and not work the way the Japanese system hadn't worked. But the difference now is if you control the banks, if you as the government control the commercial banking system, that is the number one tool of oppression. And with that tool of repression, you can expand that bank balance sheet and you can create as much money as you like. So a, a good current example of that is what just happened in the United States of America. There was a massive drawdown of credit lines uh, so that corporates could have cash on balance sheet heading into this crisis. Broad money growth in America, these and these are year and year numbers, just went from, uh, I think it's 7%, but it's certainly to 11% in a month. Now, that happened to be just a, an automatic uh, reaction to a crisis. Imagine a world where the governments actually control these banks and force them to lend, because I think that is really the world that we've now entered. Uh, and certainly for countries in, in the Eurozone, where the printing press is not, let's just say, not working that well, something we'll probably come back to. Uh, yeah, controlling the banks and printing money, it'd be a complete contrast to what happened in Japan. And the Japanese may, of course, now realize it and do exactly the same thing. So that is why I think we get to inflation in the end, though, you know, I still think it's going to be a, a, a very difficult path to get there. But if inflation is everywhere at all times a monetary phenomenon, the difference this time is that we will create money and nothing in Japan from 1990 to 2020 has created money, and nothing in the post-GFC from 2009 to 2020 has created money. So it means a much more active state working through the commercial banks. So effectively, one way of looking at this is, in terms of the historic example of most recently Japan, while you had the Bank of Japan um, filling the bath, at the same time, you had the commercial banks pulling the plug, so that the net net effect was that the, the bar, the level of the bar, didn't really didn't really change. Whereas in a national, we're in a, in a in a world where all of the banks or large numbers of banks have become de facto nationalised, inflation is an easier trick to pull off. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I'll just finish on that last point. If you control commercial bank balance sheets, it's not going to be difficult to create inflation. That is really the lesson of post uh, post World War Two. For investors, of course, there are two two sides to this debate. Tim, or one, uh, what happens if the government controls the, the banks? Can it create inflation or money? Yes. Does it create inflation eventually? Yes. Uh, but also, you've just completely politicised credit, mm. and that is also the result of of the state controlling these things. So, post World War Two, there were lots of people who couldn't get credit from banks. For instance, if I wanted to go out and borrow lots of money to gear up an existing commercial property in London, it would have been incredibly difficult for me to win. I just wouldn't have got that money from a bank. Now, there may have been someone in, this, in society who would have lent me that money, 
but one of the things we discussed earlier was this ramp up in debt to GDP from the kind of Milken era onwards. And that was because it was really, really easy to get credit and gear up any existing cash flow. It's called private equity. It's called commercial property. And in a politicized system, that becomes incredibly, incredibly difficult. And the people who get credit in a politicized system are people who vote. So mortgages, I think, will be freely available in this, and it might want us to consider residential real estate uh, as an investment in a repression, certainly residential real estate that isn't owned by plutocrats. Uh, I think you know who I mean and where they live. Uh, but also, uh, you know, the people who really don't get any credit, I mean, the government will obviously get as much credit as it wants from the banks, will be these these people who just gear up existing, existing cash flows. So Financial repression, people often look at it and say, well, that's really easy. You put inflation above interest rates. But I think they don't realize the scale of the manipulation of the savings system that it entails to engineer that. It doesn't happen easily. And it doesn't happen without the introduction of mass controls on capital and ultimately its free movement across borders. I mean, it sounds like the the, the scenario you're depicting is one effectively a real sort of like uh, tour de force battle royale between between Keynes and Hayek uh, or if you like sort of the the, the, con- the command and control economy versus the free market incidentally what what you've also highlighted to me is that those comp or re- reiterated is that those companies that are capital light in structure may have a huge operational advantage. So the likes of, for want of a better phrase, the FANGs, if they're not dependent on the banking system for growth because they can generate sufficient internal cash flow, look even better than they did before, which the market would seem to be validating as a theory. I'm, I'm not sure I agree on that, actually. So there yeah. are lots of lots of companies that I wouldn't invest in, particularly commercial property. I think it'll be restricted to debt. But let me give you an example of a very he- uh, asset-heavy company that would yeah. be pretty, pretty close to the top of the list to receive credit. And that is an asset-heavy company that employs lots of people. So uh, to, just to start on the bad side of that, the one I remember from my youth was called British Leyland. Uh, <laughs> British Leyland didn't have much problem getting credit because it was employing lots of people. So there will be some of these asset-heavy companies that uh, you know will be able to get. But but it's for you know it's what we had after World War II was this line between the productive and the speculative. Tim, mm-hmm. now that line comes back again. Uh, if you can find a corporation which is deemed by the political operatives to be productive and not speculative, then I wouldn't see a reason why it wouldn't continue to get capital. Uh, but the, the, the kind of elephant in the room here, and the thing that's different from 45, so much of the credit these days comes from the markets and not from the banks. Mm-hmm. So to engineer a, a very successful financial repression, control of the banks really was key. Uh, this time it's going to have to be much bigger than that. And this is kind of worrying because I think it has to be much more extensive because you are not going to reduce that to GDP uh, if you allow there to be a free market in uh, bonds, because everybody will want to borrow money uh, in that scenario. Interest rates on corporate bonds would go high. You'd have to try and stop that. Uh, and we did have a way of doing that after World War II. It was called the Capital Issues Committee. Uh, and if you wanted to raise uh, any form of capital equity or debt capital from the marketplace, you needed permission of this committee, which obviously was deeply politicized. I love the committee because it's first ever decision after World War II to allow a bond issue by a private commercial business. Uh, remember, we were defining uh, productive from the speculative here. The first thing that they financed was a it was a circus. <laughs> <laughs> so back to our friends, the Romans, it was kind of bread and circuses after World War II. So, uh, it, but it, 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 I, I smile at it because you never know what the government's going to find as productive. You know, in the markets, you get capital based on the market price. That's the theory anyway, though it's not always true, as we know recently. But uh, 
what's what's the right productive use of capital? Well, when the government gets into that business, I mean, only God knows ultimately what gets financed and what doesn't get financed. But I would make a case for asset heavy if it is seen as providing, uh, you know, if Jaguar Land Rover needs capital from the banks I, uh, to expand and whatever it's doing to build electric cars, I suspect mm-hmm. the government would be quite keen for it to have that capital. If you could start again with the financial system, what would it look like? Yeah, the financial system would have to look uh, like a system where there is no advantage in having debt over equity. And I would, I mean, obviously we could go through a lot of things that we would say, but I think if we had had that in place uh, since the early 1980s, uh, of course we'd have uh, we would have booms and busts. Thank goodness for booms and busts. That's kind of what capitalism is all about. Absolutely. But I don't think, we, but I don't think we'd have the structural. Uh, level of overgearing that we have today. So uh, tax equivalents for debt and equity, uh, old papers by Medigli, M- M- Miller and Medigliani burnt in a, in a huge pyre. Uh, we would be in a better position, uh, though cur- currently obviously it wouldn't make much difference, but uh, in cyclically but structurally there would be a huge difference. Would we have a central bank and would money be linked to gold? Uh, no, no. I mean, I this is probably somewhere where we're going to disagree. I don't believe in the, in the gold standard. Uh, at all. It's not something I've ever really believed in. I believe in gold, but that's not the same thing as believing in the gold standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hard, hard money, I don't think, and we, we're probably going to have a huge row about this, I don't think hard money is necessarily compatible with democracy. So that uh, that 2% inflation target per annum, which I think most people who favour a gold standard think is outrageous, ha- has a role to play socially. And the redistribution of wealth, if you had a deflation, and that's the thing about the gold standard, it leads you often to deflations. Uh, there are good deflations and bad deflations, by the way, which we might also discuss. Uh, but the impact on society, I think, is too gross. So in a democracy, and remember, that even the United Kingdom doesn't really become a democracy until 1928. That's the first time that almost all women get the vote, as opposed to women of property. The gold standard doesn't survive much, much beyond democracy. So I would prefer democracy over the gold standard, and I'd fear for the future of democracy if we had a, a gold standard enforcing the kind of very crushing, you know, I'm in favour of booms and busts, I'm in favour of the market, uh, but the gold standard can, uh, can create a form of dislocation of wealth, which is very bad for social stability and democracy. So now let the argument begin. Tim. <laughs> what what I what I get from this is is you know one one looks on at the the let's just say the rise of government in within the market system and my 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 seminal experience I guess fairly soon after I started working in the city was the ERM crisis of of 1992 or I should say the ERM crisis of of you know however long it lasted but specifically with Sterling's ethnic cleansing from the ERM in 1992 and I say so if you've got government mucking around with bonds with stock markets, with ETFs. The one market that's beyond even government to control is is the currency market. So if if you ultimately have central banking and government overreach, for me, the logical end, end stage of that is, let's say, if it's not currency collapse, it's a, a rising sense of distrust in the currency system. And by default, um, and I choose my words advisedly, uh, a concomitant rise in the investor interest in gold because it's the one asset that even government isn't powerful enough to kick around. Yeah, I, mean, I, don't, I don't disagree with gold as an investment. Let's, let's be clear about that. Remember, the theory of central banking is that central banks are independent. The theory is, and in theory, we give them a target we want as a society, uh, and they aim to meet the, the target. Uh, I, I prefer that to a gold standard. Now, we can argue about the target, <laughs> the target's right and the target's wrong, and we can also argue 
whether they're making any effort to reach the target or whether they've gone way beyond that. So obviously, I think they've gone way beyond that. Obviously, I think the target is wrong. Uh, but just because you disagree with that doesn't mean to say the necessary thing. The gold standard is better. Uh, but gold is an investment, Tim. I think, I think you're right. And we are watching. I mean, you're absolutely right. We're watching the deep, deep, deep politicization uh, of, all, of, of our central bankers, which can't ultimately be good for for currencies and must be good for gold. So as it happens, we are heading towards an end game when this has to happen. But let's imagine that I was right and we hadn't prioritized debt growth through debt over the last 30 years. Maybe you know we wouldn't be heading towards that end game. If the central bankers would still be able to give us the targets that we requested of them, 2% inflation, uh, without massive creep into every section of society. But you know we are where we are. This form of central banking failed. Uh, does that mean that central banking always fails uh, in the long run? I think Tim, your point is a good one. Probably in the long run, the answer is yes. But ultimately, so did the gold standard itself because of the impact it inflicted upon society in the 1930s. And uh, as you know, that's up for debate. But I think many people believe that uh, without the gold standard, we maybe may not have had the 1930s. And if you know what followed, and we all know what followed the 1930s, the world paid a pretty high price for it. You've, you've, you've raised the issue of the 1930s. One thing I was going to ask you was, uh, and this goes back to sort of economic, the, the role of financial history and economic history. I, I didn't study economics. So the only time I was formally taught anything at all about the Great Depression was at school when it was basically suggested that you had the Great Crash in 1929 in the States, that you know the US economy then contracted sharply over the subsequent next years. Then a guy called Roosevelt was parachuted in. He set up loads of alphabet agencies and courtesy of the New Deal, voila, problem solved. And because I've, I've over the last 15, 20 years, moved in much more Austrian or classical economic circles, I'm now much more minded to subscribe to the view that, that Roosevelt's New Deal perpetuated the Depression. And it was only the Second World War that pulled the US out of the Depression. Do you have a view as to, because it seems to me that there is there is still no consensus as to what actually happened in the thirties. So Ben Bernanke has his has his pet theories and says, "Oh, it will never it'll never happen again." But I'm just not so sure there is there is that real agreed consensus. Yeah. So uh, you're right. I mean, so the, the data shows you that in 1937 the whole thing started falling apart. So well into the New Deal and well before World War Two, unemployment was shooting up and it looked like it wasn't working. So there is. I think some uh, real evidence that the New Deal wasn't delivering by 1937. But then, of course, we we rolled into a very different world. The thing I would pick out from all of that is not the New Deal, but money. So uh, Bernanke's opinion on the fiscal side, which is Roosevelt, is one thing. Uh, it was Friedman that he took the other most important lesson, or the most important lesson from from a central banker. Central bankers theoretically have nothing to do with fiscal policy. Uh, the German Constitutional Court has an opinion on that as well. Uh, but what Bernanke said and what Friedman said and what I think is right is that the fundamental error that the Fed permitted was a massive contraction in the supply of money. Uh, I'm not suggesting they should have created 5, 10, 15, 20% growth in money. Uh, but by letting banks go bankrupt, remember there was no deposit insurance guarantee. So when a bank went bankrupt, you lost your money or you lost a lot of it until the bank uh, was restructured and reopened. And that's what set in place the debt deflation that uh, wreaked havoc. I, I have an open mind on the uses of the um, of the recovery mechanism, which was launched by Hoover, of course, not by FDR. Uh, but I think the important lesson is not. I mean, we can debate the fiscal, as you say, it's still up for debate the fiscal. 
I don't really think anybody too much debates that the Fed should never have let in, in really big contraction and broad money. So just to go back to this issue of deflation, if broad money growth was going at 5 6% and we had deflation, I'd let it run. I wouldn't do anything about it at all. I'd say that's kind of a healthy deflation. There's all sorts of healthy forms of deflation, and I wouldn't worry about it. But obviously, the, the thing that sets that period in economic history out was just how much money disappeared, was destroyed, and how much money supply contracted. And, and that's what I think the Fed should try to stop from from, uh, from happening. Uh, but if deflation results, even though you've got 5% growth in broad money, then just let it run. It's just the market reallocating resources. You've just alluded to the uh, decision of the German courts. For people who probably, are, uh, many people may not be aware of this issue, could you just give a brief synopsis of what's actually happened between the, Ger- the German uh, court system and the, um, the European Court of Justice? Yeah, so this is the German Federal Constitutional Court. So it's the most powerful court in the land, and it adjudicates on the written constitution, which Germany has the basic law put in place after World War II, uh, basically to defend the country from uh, takeover by dangerous politicians, because it had suffered in that in the past. The GSE, uh, the, 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 the Constitutional Court adjudicated uh, on, on two things, really. Uh, one is the expansion of the European Central Bank's balance sheet on a particular project uh, launched in 2015, but also a decision on that expansion by the European Court of Justice. And it came up with a, a, a remarkable decision. Well, remarkable to some people, but actually, I, I mean, I would agree completely in line with the laws of, of Germany. It said that the member states of the EU are the masters of the treaty. This is not a federal system. Uh, the European Central Bank, if it's going to use its balance sheet for things other than monetary policy, so they specifically state fiscal policy, but I think behind it is a federalization process as well. If, they, if the ECB is going to do that, it is probably acting beyond its remit. So they need more information from the ECB just to know exactly, uh, in the technical legal term, proportionate. Is their monetary policy proportionate? Is it monetary policy at all? Or is it social policy, federalization, is it fiscal policy by funding certain states in Europe that couldn't otherwise get financing at this rate. Uh, and probably even more importantly for people, long-term investors like me, it challenges the European Court of Justice and says you don't have ultimate jurisdiction on this stuff. Uh, you, you are not the ultimate court of Europe if you breach local law and you beat, breach uh, German constitutional law. And it accuses the ECJ of acting ultra-virus. So uh, you imagine if this had been coming out of Hungary. I mean, there'd be absolute uproar about the rise of fascism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So all the... Uh, Constitutional Court has really done is something very simple for democracy. It said if Europe is to move to a federal system, it has to do that through the democratic process. It has to do that through the member states changing their constitutions. It has to do that because we have to know what the new constitution is going to be. That new constitution of Europe, if it's to be much more centralized, will have to be endorsed, have to be voted on by parliaments, member parliaments, and then we'll probably have to be voted on in referendums in many states who need to change their constitution. But you cannot do it in Luxembourg and Frankfurt, Luxembourg being the home uh, of the ECJ and Frankfurt being the home of the the ECB because they are not democratically elected and sanctioned. Now, there will be people listening to this who completely disagree with all of that, but that's what the German Constitutional Court has said. Personally, I welcome flushing this out into the open so that we can, as a continent, decide on the future of the Constitution in an open democratic forum rather than the dark corridors of Luxembourg and Frankfurt. It begs the question of why they didn't think of this when they were setting it up in 1999. 
the euro. Yeah, well, we all know that the, uh, what happened with uh, with the euro, and it was um, you know it was in, I mean it's, it, it was put in as an entirely undemocratic act anyway. The idea was that if you you go to a economic union, you go to a monetary union, and that forces the political union. So because you couldn't get the things the other way around, you would never get the people to agree on a political union of all the member states in 1999, 79, 89, or 59. So what you did is you put in, uh, this was Jacques Delors, you put in the currency, and the currency forced a political union upon people who didn't want it. That has been my opinion of the euro since the day it was it was created. It was a political venture to force a political union. Uh, and that's the worst possible reason to form a monetary union. Uh, it may have taken a long time, but the seeds are coming home to roost. The seeds are coming home to roost by the rise of political extremism within Europe. Yeah. Uh, the right and the far left. And I would argue strongly that had the European Union continued what without a Euro uh, Eurozone, we would not be watching the rise of the far left and the far right across Europe. Totally agree. One should perhaps self-identify as, as a Brexiteer, so I, I clearly have a foot in that camp. But notwithstanding that, do you think there's a risk that a, a European Union structure that already looked badly economically mauled by the governmental response or lack thereof to to coronavirus, do you think there's a chance that this, this 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 new spat between Germany and the European Commission effectively could could potentially set the wheels of the whole project um, to to fly off? Yeah, yes, it could because it probably means that this has to be done in public and in the open through the democratic process. And I think no matter how pro the uh, European project you are, how much you want the federalisation of Europe for whatever reasons, it is very difficult to see that every nation state could jump into that federalization. It's actually very difficult to see how they could even agree what the, fe- the new federal constitution would be. So political open progress towards that is, is unlikely. So that leaves Europe in the middle. And that's a very nasty place to be, given where we are today in terms of the scale of this recession, number one, but the scale of the, uh, the, scale of the reconstruction afterwards, Tim. So I have written for clients that what I think will happen next, and we've alluded to it, is that as the states control more of the commercial banks, uh, it'll be obvious that they own the printing presses at that stage, not the European Central Bank, uh, and they will progress to fund whatever they want, governments and reconstruction with those banks. Now, at that stage, we are really talking about de facto, not, not the spectacular breakup of the euro that some people expect, but just that we begin to put capital controls in place within Europe as these banks begin to churn out as many euros as they as they want. There's a precedent for that with both Greece and Cyprus. And that we look back, and it's always this way, it's never that that's the day the euro ended, but we look back with the benefit of hindsight and say that's when it began to come to an end. Mm. Now, Europe or a European Union with capital controls and independent printing of money may be a European Union that prevails, but it's not a euro that prevails. So that kind of slow march away from a single currency is is very problem. Just one other thing on that. A financial repression involves massive uh, changes in legislation to force savers to buy things you want them to, to, to buy. Now, the idea that all the member states would endorse that as one policy, which they'd have to do, everyone would have to have the same policy in a single currency, is also highly unlikely. So we've dis- we began this discussion by saying, what are the solutions to very high debt to GDP? It, to me, it has to be an end of the euro as we know it, that individual countries get the printing press through the commercial banks and they put capital controls in place to force that liquidity into their own system. And de facto, if not de euro, de euro, there is no euro. Do you think it's um, possible that individual countries could issue their own cryptocurrencies, um, like the digital dollar, 
for example, but within within Europe, and that could change the landscape as well. Yeah, I mean, any country that goes to issue its own currency, and by that it means any form of uh, means of transaction which is acceptable for the payment of taxation, anything like that, anything which they force as a as a means of transaction, you know, mandate that you have to take it. Those transact those. Uh, Mandates are not always completely successful, but this is not people trying it. That is the, the route to the end of the euro. I'm just suggesting it doesn't have to be anywhere near as dramatic as that. Mm. You know, uh, Varoufakis had this plan to start paying uh, pensions and government benefits in this new credit, which would be fungible in the economy. It doesn't have to be as dramatic as that. All it has to be is the state, let's take at least seizing control, not ownership, but control of the banks, forcing them to buy huge amounts of Italian government debt in the process, creating lots of euros. And they would be euros. And both sides of this debate arguing that those euros mustn't be allowed to leave Italy. The Italians want them to stay in Italy because they fly around the economy and reflate the economy. The Germans don't want them in, in Germany because they potentially depress German interest rates uh, and maybe even so many euros in Germany create some sort of inflation in Germany. So by mutual consent, the fourth freedom, the free movement of capital, is ended to permit this. So, so you're right. It can absolutely happen the way you've suggested it, which is kind of like a Varoufakis plan. Yeah. Uh, but actually, it's probably happening anyway. We might date, date the end of the euro to the day this crisis began, given the, and this is a German thing, it's a British thing, it's an American thing, it's an Italian thing, given the the, 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 the instantaneous reflexive action of the state to jump into the commercial banking system, that was probably the moment that we say, with the benefit of hindsight, that the euro began to come to an end. Tell us about good deflation and bad deflation, because as far as I was concerned, too much of anything is bad. And <laughs> <laughs> so how, where, where are the lines drawn? Well, in the, in the late 1990s, uh, America was importing significant deflation. It was doing that because we had an Asian economic crisis. Uh, Asian currencies fell. They were importing lots of stuff. The central bank was mandated not to let that happen. It was mandated to generate inflation, even though it was importing deflation. Now, I would argue that was incredibly positive and good deflation for the United States of America because the people of America were getting cheaper stuff all the time. And yet it wasn't having a negative impact on their own cash flows. And this is kind of the key thing. The bad deflation is a form of deflation that is going to reduce cash flows, household and corporate, private sector and aggregate, to such a level that we get mass debt defaults. That would be the bad uh, deflation. That's the bad deflation of the 1930s, wiped out lots of financial institutions. Uh, But that form of deflation in which we just all get more productive and produce things at cheaper and cheaper prices, uh, if that continues to force down the price level, then that's a good deflation and not a bad deflation. The problem is, of course, we just gave the central bankers that inflation target, 2%. So they they did what they were told and manufactured an inflation, but really by the provision of massive amounts of credit to try and gear things up. Uh, that really wasn't uh, wasn't necessary. In my opinion, they should have permitted that. Uh, permitted that that deflation to come through. I would target a kind of broad money growth approach and just let broad money growth at a level which is not compatible with very high inflation and then just let the market work it out. As long as the broad money growth is relatively stable, we shouldn't be looking at instability. I say that, but of course, here we are with so much debt to GDP that it's too late for that particular policy. Uh, But there's good deflation out there. I mean, I'm I'm looking over my bookshelf here at my copy of Capitalism in America, co-written by Alan Greenspan. And I would, I, having read it, it is a good read, having read it, I would, I would uh, subtitle that in praise of deflation, uh, which is, it's basically how, uh, you know, gear, how uh, 
utilization of American resources constantly put downward pressure on lots of goods, mm-hmm. which is really, really ironic that Greenspan should write a book about that, given what he did in the late 1990s, trying to generate inflation as the global economy desperately tried to produce cheaper things. Yeah. I think the outcome is more geared towards inflation looking forward. Would that also imply that the equity markets would rise in, say, the UK, Europe, US, potentially even China, or are global tensions too high at the moment? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm not optimistic about equity prices, but there's a really wonderful thing about equities, and that is the, the great line from Mr. Buffett that price is what you pay and value is what you get. And uh, I've also written this book on the stock market and looking at the four extremes of the bear market bottoms. And basically, they can discount almost anything. And at the right valuation, you buy them anyway. We're just not at the right valuation yet, particularly in the United States of America. We are closer in the United Kingdom. And I think uh, if you can split out, take out all the foreign stocks listed, foreign earnings stocks listed in the United Kingdom, you might find that local stocks are getting pretty close to being uh, very cheap. But generally speaking, we are not at very low valuations for index averages. The banks are depressing this a lot. I think if you strip the banks out, equities look in Europe and in, uh, in the United Kingdom fair value. Uh, U.S. equities look incredibly uh, overvalued. So it's difficult to say that equities are discounting the form of future that I see in a financial repression. Uh, but there does come a time at a right value where some equities anyway are provide do provide fairly good protection in a, in a financial repression. They are a claim on real assets. Uh, management do genuine, generally get to put their prices up in line with inflation. There is an element of operational gearing. Uh, this time, unlike the 66 to 82 bear market where you know interest rates going to record highs played a key role in driving down the stock market we're not going to see that this time they just just can't afford that so there, there is a case for the equity uh, investment for the very long-run investor but not quite yet uh, in my opinion but that time that time does come uh, so equities if i'm taking a 20 30 year view it's a better store of value than bonds for sure not a better store of value for gold but sometime in the next year, year and a half, we might get an exceptionally good opportunity to buy uh, very cheap equities. You've alluded to the book you wrote. That, that book is called The Anatomy of the Bear, Lessons from Wall Street to Four Great Bottoms. To what extent does contemporary coverage of the media play a part in that in that book and those those bear market bottoms? Yeah, that's why I wrote that book, Tim. It's, uh, what you know as an investor is that consensus is important. And uh, for the poor people like me, you have to try and forecast the future. We've not just got to try and forecast the future. We've got to try and say what's already in the price. So the the book focused on the media because uh, the media is exactly the same. The first quotes from the media on that book relate to 1921. People think, well, that was so long ago and people were so stupid then. Anything said in 1921. But it was the same principle. The telephone was in full Alexander Graham Bell, 1876. Remember, the telephone was working. So what happened is journalists would phone up fund managers and brokers and say, what do you think of the market? And in days when the market was going up, their comments would be on the front page of the paper if they were bullish. And anybody who was bearish would be at best in the middle or not in the paper at all. So the newspapers are always a very good reflection of uh, consensus. And uh, that is what I discovered when I read them. There was broad consensus, uh, certainly in the first five pages of the newspapers in 21, 32, 49, and 82, that there's no way this would ever end. And I think we experienced that again in 2009 when I used the book to write a pretty bullish piece for for uh, for investors. And I would expect to be writing another bullish piece for investors on equities uh, sometime in the next few years as well uh, when they when they get cheap enough. And it's just... 
I'll tell you a very good story from 2009 when I was in Chicago meeting a very large investment manager and trying to persuade them to be bullish. And there was a very young guy in the room, probably 25. And he kept not every single positive argument I made, he kept knocking it back. And I said, then, okay, so I understand you're a bear. What do you think the right level for this market is? And he said, zero. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, uh, and I would say, uh, and, and this is not a promotional piece, but that's kind of revulsion. And it's a word often bandied around, and I've seen it very rarely in my lifetime. But I would say I'm seeing revulsion today for value stocks. Mm. So I did, I did have to note that that was not a promotional piece there, Tim. But, you know, if I get on a call with a client today and say, what about value stocks? I mean, it's like, okay. I mean, it's like you just produced a dirty smell in the room. So uh, that revulsion uh, means equities are so cheap that you can buy them even though the outlook's not that good. And I think for value stocks in particular, we may actually have got there. I read quite a quite a, a a funny piece. I can't remember where it was now, but um, it was it was about a, a guy who he um he was a uh, he, he would co- commentate on the boat race, the the Oxford Cambridge boat race, and he would he would be following the two crews in his own little boat, and sort of be paddling furiously behind them, and then sort of giving a little little uh, piece to radio. And there was one section of the river where he couldn't see at all what was going on, so he was reliant on um, a guy on the bank. And when they passed a certain bridge, he would then he would then raise a flag or something that would let let this guy in the boat know which which side was ahead. And so this guy caught up with the the, the flagsman on the river at one point. He said, "Just out of interest, how how did you know? Because you couldn't see particularly well which, which crew was ahead at that point." He said, "Oh, I was listening to this guy on the radio." <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I just mentioned that in the context of sort of the media and the market sort of you know interfering with each other. George Soros would call it reflexivity, I think. Right, that's the word I was just about yeah. to use. I mean, that's the difference between sciences and, and this stuff. This is why it isn't a science. There's a feedback loop, and the feedback loop is huge. Uh, and that's why I wrote the book, so I could look at the media on these four occasions. Because I don't think I'd be done before. That's the best reason for writing a book, because no one's done it before. And I've been kind of disappointed that nobody took it up and did that for many other things in financial history and just looked at the media and said, well, can we tell? We know with the benefit of hindsight when the media has been completely, totally and utterly wrong. Can we learn something from that? And uh, it's much easier now because of digitalization to do it. It's still very time consuming. I, I am actually writing another book, but it won't be doing that because it takes too much time. But, you know, we've got kids all over this country churning out dissertations and all sorts of things to do with finance. Uh, that will be a wonderful thing for them to uh, to do and add to our our understanding of humanity, actually, apart from uh, just stock markets. I guess one of the reasons I asked the question is because I have this, this dreadful feeling that when the dust finally settles after the, the, the pandemic, if it ever does, then there's going to be hell to pay for the role of the media, who I would argue have done as much as anybody to exacerbate the worst aspects of the crisis. If politicians weren't being forced into policies by by sort of ghoulish uh, behaviour by grandstanding commentators, maybe we wouldn't have had the lockdown in the first place. Uh, so I, well, on the lockdown, no comment on the media, I completely agree. So yeah. it's just been a, a disgrace, and I think the public is disgusted I think disgusted is the right word with the media. Uh, we want journalism and what we got is commentary. And the comment and everybody's commentary comes with their own political bias, as yours and I would also do, Tim. Sure, sure. But journalism is gone. Uh, there's no sign of any journalism whatsoever. And in the job I'm doing, I'm trying to keep an eye on the entire world. I'm seeing unbelievable global changes in politics and finance and economics, and none of them are being reported by our press. Uh, and I think it's absolutely scandalous because all they want to do is score points 
against the government. I guess there's some people who want to score points for the government. Uh, but it's some sort of little tiny, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin argument. Mm. We need to know about the entire planet and these massive things that are going on all over the world, and they just simply uh, won't report them. So maybe what happens out of this is we find a way of paying for proper journalism. That would be nice. It may have to be a charitable venture, but I think we might learn that one of the things we really need is a return of proper journalism. Uh, let, let's hope that that comes out of this. But as to, as to how you pay for proper journalism is a, is a major challenge. If the G7 markets are somewhat overvalued and you really have to be looking for value stocks to, to, to find said value, are there other areas in the world that you can see opportunities, perhaps frontier markets or emerging markets? Or do you think that there's a risk of them being hit by the COVID-19 spreading to those areas where they may be less able to cope? Yeah, so I, I mean, because I, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not looking at anything to do with this virus at all. Mm-hmm. What it will be, we have to look beyond this to see what happens next. What I would look to is, are there countries that don't have to financially repress? Because that is where you should have your money. Poss- possibly, that is the emerging markets. So why the hesitation? Why do I say it's possibly the emerging markets? Well, their debt to GDP levels are really low. Uh, private level, private debt to GDP levels have risen a lot in the last 10 years, but they are still reasonable. And public sector debt to GDP levels are really low. Now, if we end the crisis and the total debt to GDP ratio of emerging markets is normal, let us say, let's say it's gone up to, let's pick a number of less than 200%, whereas France is over 300%. And you could say, here's a country that doesn't need financial repression, and that is a place where you want to have your equities, because that is a place where interest rates will be at a reasonably correct level relative to inflation, and asset allocation will continue. And if you like, capitalism will continue. Uh, I think that's where you should be, and the, the, the place where you did that post-World War II was actually Switzerland. So emerging markets could be that uh, place. The, the only hesitation, of course, is that we don't actually know where debt to GDP and emerging markets will end up uh, after this, because it can rise really quickly indeed. Uh, Ireland's not an emerging market, but Ireland went into the 2007 crisis with a government debt to GDP ratio of 23% and came out with one at 134%, because so much of the private sector liability in the form of banks in particular rebounded onto the state's balance sheet. So I'm, I'm kind of holding my breath on emerging markets and thinking, I'm thinking really Asia more than Latin America here. I'm thinking that some of the Asian countries might do well. Now, the massive overlay on that is obviously the Cold War with China. Uh, and uh, although initially that Cold War uh, will probably be pretty negative for some of these emerging markets in the long run, it does create potentially lots of opportunities for Asian countries to take some of the business away from China, which is clearly, very clearly, going to move away from that. On which note, did you see that the Indians have set aside land in India for anybody who wants to relocate their factory from China? Not a big deal, except that the land set aside is twice the size of Luxembourg. <laughs> With debt to GDP levels rising basically across the world, isn't it a better way to look at the comparative rise rather than the absolute rise? Because, of course, if everybody's debt to GDP is going to go up, then it doesn't really matter as much. No, I disagree on that for savers. I mean, that might be a comparative thing you could do for the economy, but not for savers. The question is, how do we bring it down? Uh, and maybe there's economies where they don't even try to bring it down because it's not actually that high. I would say if you lived in an economy where they where it was put it this way, let's say we take economy A, where through high levels of real growth we can reduce our debt to GDP level. Uh, I'm going to pick Singapore uh, because the debt to GDP level isn't very high, and therefore real levels of growth will just bring it down naturally with moderate inflation, let's say two to three. 
and you live in an economy where, let's say, France, where total debt to GDP is way through 300%, uh, you know, the impact for savers of bringing the debt to GDP ratio down in France will be much, much worse than in country A. So we're really looking for country A. So it really does matter. I mean, so what, what we're saying is not all countries might need to inflate away their debt. So if Germany wasn't in the euro, and if Austria wasn't in the euro, uh, it, it would I mean German German debt to GDP has been coming down for years. Austrian debt to GDP has been coming down for years with moderate levels of real growth. I mean, real growth has not been particularly high in Germany and Austria. And the reason is that just, you know, debt to GDP didn't start at a high level. So those are the countries you want to look at. And I would say, depending which one you choose, you have profound differences for savers. Uh, it is a bigger debate whether this, I mean, I talk to people all the time, I explain this policy of repression. And they say, that's a fantastic policy. We should have that tomorrow morning. Uh, if you are a debtor and are fully employed and can keep your wages growing in line with inflation, then what's, what's not to like? So really, I, I mean, I, I take the point, but I just say it's, it's, it's an impact on savers in particular that we're discussing here. Mm. Uh, and for savers, there is a big difference. What do you think about the role of quant analysis and traders on the current global landscape? Okay, well, you can't uh, you can't have a financial historian on and then have them agreeing that this quantitative trading is a wonderful thing to do. <laughs> you know, the, the idea that you can devote, I mean, we've talked about reflexivity and feedback loops, and the idea that there is an equation that gets all of that is wrong and uh, potentially very, very, very dangerous. So uh, I know there are people much cleverer than I am when it comes to mathematics who absolutely assure me that these algorithms can accurately divine uh, mass psychology, changes in mass psychology and feedback loops. Well, good luck with it, uh, but I suspect it's inherently dangerous. And they will say, well, it's not more dangerous than letting human beings do it, but it, it fundamentally is uh, because they tend to move as a herd. Uh, human beings also move as a herd, but not with such volume. Might be a good way to put it. So I, uh, you'll find if you if you Google my name in Open University, you'll find a, a little fifteen minute lecture I did for the Open University on why uh, this is all wrong. And uh, one of the things I focused on was the difference between uh, risk and uncertainty. Uh, there is a brilliant new book on that by Lord King and uh, John Kay, which I highly recommend. Uh, I don't think computers are very good at uh, uncertainty. Human beings are not very good at uncertainty, but I think they'll be better than computers. And radical uncertainty is really something that is profoundly important in the savings business. And these algorithms just will not be able to get it, particularly in terms of the impact of technological change. So I put them in the dangerous camp. And uh, as ever with these things, when they make a lot of money, everyone's in favor of them. Uh, and then when they prove to be dangerous, everyone's against them. But we good to be uh, upfront in advance and say they're dangerous. Isn't leverage and arcane financial products more of a risk, though? Yeah. 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 I don't, yeah, I don't, yeah. I mean, ultimately, the reason that we're not having a normal recession and didn't have a normal recession last time and have to go into 20, 30 years of repression all come down to one thing, leverage. So if we had all the other errors going on in the in the system but didn't have the leverage, I, I, you know, I think the outlook in the future would be very, very different. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this this, this trading issue is, is definitely secondary to leverage. As debt-to-GDP ratios reduce, will the stock market in history, would it normally go sideways or would it tend to fall? Because you mentioned the period, the 1960s to 1982, for when debt-to-GDP was, was going down. And obviously the stock market didn't perform that well until after 1982, when obviously everything seemed to rocket. Yeah, there's two distinct phases after World War II. There's 45 to 66, and then there's 66 to... 82, 45 to 66, the markets 
particularly the U.S. market, equity market does pretty well. Uh, U.S. didn't have as strong a repression as, as other places uh, for fairly obvious reasons associated with debt accumulated during World War II. Uh, but also, and this is really important, at the end of World War II, we had a yield curve capped, uh, I think it was 2.5% was the, was, the, was the maximum yield on risk-free. Uh, the dividend yield was about 10 and behind that dividend yield, there was a corporate marginal corporate tax rate close to 100% during World War II. So equities were unbelievably cheap at the end of World War II. And, you know, we have to keep coming back to this. Price is what you pay. Value is what you get. They were cheap. Uh, and I looked at how cheap they were in, in 1949. So from 49 to 66, yeah, period of repression, equities did well. But I think it's because they were particularly cheap. But from 66 to 83, they did dreadfully badly in both nominal uh, and real terms. And that's really when uh, interest rates began to break out, that the inflation that had been building and building and building suddenly was reflected in in interest rates that the attempt to repress was there because rates, real rates were kept negative for some of that time. But that's when it really became disastrous for equities. Now, the, I think the go-to work on this is Buffett, who wrote uh, How Inflation Swindles the Equity Investor, which was in Fortune magazine in 1977. I guess it's online somewhere. Uh, and he just explained why equities, because in 66, people, many people saw inflation coming and they thought, well, we'll buy equities. I mean, who would want to own bonds in inflation? Buy equities. And then saw those equity prices in nominal terms lower by 82. And inflation obviously uh, meant that in, in, uh, in real terms, they were much worse. And uh, Buffett explained why that inflation was, was bad for, for equity investors. Not all equity investors. I mean, there were stock pickers who could, who could beat the market during that period, Buffett himself, but a little bit of timing there in terms of getting in at the bottom in that case. But uh, yeah, so I, I think this is much more negative for equity valuations in 45 to 66, because equities just don't look as cheap as they did in 45. So on the whole, uh, I would say that the um, equities tend to fall in a repression, but, 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 but at some time, and it can be tomorrow morning or the day after, they get so cheap, you buy them anyway. Uh, the, the good thing about equities is the bear markets come quickly. Value can come quickly. Central bankers are keen to stop it, but value can come quickly. And you buy them. The lesson of bond markets is that bear markets and bonds and bull markets and bonds last 30 to 40 years. So the good thing about equities is they adjust. They can adjust, given left to their own devices, to the right price quite quickly. Bonds don't. And Buffett, to his credit, wound up his partnership rather than get sucked down by the bear market of the early 70s. Well, that's what I mean. There's a bit of timing involved in Buffett's ability to do yeah. But that was a, that ultimately that was a call on, on valuations, and um, so you know it may be it's not you couldn't have stayed invested entirely from '66 to '82 and had the performance that Buffett did. A bit of it was about timing, uh, but there were certainly uh, equities that did well from '66 to to '82, even though the aggregate aggregate did incredibly badly. Have Have you had the opportunity to watch the latest uh, Buffett uh, Berkshire Hathaway presentation? Because it's uh... I believe his hair is growing even quicker than mine is. <laughs> <laughs> it's It's quite a sobering one. I mean, uh, not not to put too fine a point on it, but if you read between the lines, he's uh, he's not exactly bullish. It's been very interesting to me that his cash is stayed on the sidelines, and secondly, that he's actually raised quite a lot of bond finance. So uh, there is money there. Now, you might, it might be there's something in the balance sheet of the insurance companies that needs a bit more capital on board for sure. But uh, his absence this time, as opposed to 2007, 2008, is notice. Uh, just one thing, I sent him and Charlie Munger a copy of my book in late 2008 when they had just done the uh, transaction on the Goldman's convertible. And I got a nice note back from, uh, uh, from his secretary, and it just said that Mr. Buffett would like to thank you for thinking about him in these difficult times. <laughs> 
Wow. <laughs> and I got a handwritten note from Charlie Munger uh, thanking me, which I put somewhere so safe I've never been able to find again. <laughs> so in order to get your research, you would go to the Eric website, is that correct? Yeah, there's a problem though. I mean, but it's the nature of the Eric website that it's only open to professional investors. That's just the not the law of the land. So you'd have to you'd have to work for a regulated financial institution to be able to access the Eric website. I see. I see. So I'm just thinking, if, you know, how if people wanted to get a flavour of of what you're thinking, if even if they're not able to to obviously access the Eric website, could they? Do you do you tweet or do you do you regularly post it anywhere else in in smaller form? No, no, I don't. But if they put my name in to the internet with a current year, what I do is write regular uh, well discussions like this. Yeah, and they get posted up. So they're random; they're not in any formalized list, but they're but they're reasonably uh, reasonably regular. And our good friends at Zero Hedge are, are very good at. Uh, picking research from wherever they want and putting it on Zero Hedge. So it sometimes pops up on Zero Hedge as well. Great. So hopefully we can have you back on the show very soon so we can get an update. But Tim, let's go to Media Picks. Um, something I happened, happened to be on the other night, and I just thought it was a rather charming little film. It's called The Way, Way Back, and it's from 2013. And it's one of these coming-of-age uh, dramas, and it's got a cracking cast, and it's basically about a, about a teenage kid who's teenage young lad who's not having a happy life and his dad's left and Steve Carell sort of in, injected himself into the family as sort of stepdad figure, but he's a bit of a bit of a shit. Uh, Tony Collette plays the mum. Alison Janney, who is always excellent, plays family friend. But the 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 star is one of the most underrated people in in film, which is Sam Rockwell. So the kid oh, turns yeah. up at turns up at a water park and then sort of falls under the spell of this extremely charismatic, extremely funny employee at the water park, played by Sam Rockwell. As far as I'm concerned, Sam Rockwell can do no ill at all. He's just superb and extremely funny, extremely charismatic actor. So it's it's called The Way, Way Back. It's just a, a rather charming sort of family film, but uh, very, very, very moving, very poignant and very funny. Excellent. Russell, do you have you mentioned a couple of books earlier, which I'm when when I listen back, I'll put those links into the show notes. Do you do you have anything to share with us? Yeah, so I have been watching something which I think is excellent because I am interested in history, which is the history of England. Uh-huh. Uh, as you can tell from my accent, I'm not English, uh, <laughs> just north of the border as well. But it's by Michael Wood, and he does it in a wonderful way. He just takes a town, which happens to be called Kenworth in uh, Leicestershire, a town I don't know at all, a fairly small town. And remarkably, the records there are ex- exceptionally good, uh, really back to 1066 and actually before 1066. And some of the family names uh, from 1066 still live in Kenworth today. And he tells the history of England through the, the history of one little village, Black Death, etc., etc. So I, um, I think it's a a wonderful way for people who think they might be just a little bit interested in history. Uh, it really makes it very personal. I think that's the problem with the history of kings and queens is it was very impersonal. But this is a really wonderful uh, thing. And it, and it obviously tells you a lot about England and what it's been through and, and how it survived and how it's changed and how it's adapted. And uh, in its own way, it's uh, very uplifting as well. And, of course, Michael Wood is a very good uh, presenter. So The History of England by Michael Wood on the BBC iPlayer. It's a repeat. I missed it the first time around. Uh, but they're putting it back up. We've got to episode four. So I think we're just getting to the Tudors uh, when it should, it should be even more fun. He's the he's the guy that did it. Is it the Trojan Wars back in the 80s? You have got a long memory. I think that's yeah. what 
broke through. But uh, this yeah. is this is a more uh, history of the people of England, and it's, yeah. it's absolutely fascinating. Well, talking of history, mine's going to be a Billy Wilder film going back to, I believe, 1960s, The Apartment. Have either, either of you seen it? Yeah, it's fab- fabulous. Yeah, I've seen all, I think I've seen all the Billy Wilder films. Re- really? Oh, I, I, Double Indemnity, my favourite top five film of all time. And I love The Apartment. I think it's just a great film. So I've only just got round to Ace, Ace, it. Ace in the Hole is the one that will blow your socks off. Really? So Ace in, the, Ace in the Hole was out on the big screen last summer and I took my family to see it because it's one of my favourite movies of all time and they absolutely hated it because it was so grindingly negative. There was no, is, no, it, no, it, no optimism or hope. It is the darkest film probably you'll ever like to see, that's true. Really? Of course, okay. it's not actually called Ace in the Hole. In, uh, it's, it's not, it was British title, Ace in the Hole. Big Carnival, isn't it? Big, Big Carnival in the United States of America, just in case anybody gets it mixed up. But Kurt Douglas is superb in Ace in the Hole. Fantastic. Well, I'll, I'll be watching that next. Excellent stuff. Russell, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure. We really hope to have you back again. I, I hope to come back and be, and be much more optimistic. <laughs> That's superb. Thanks, Paul. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thank you so much to Tim as well. And thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.